0: Good morning, morning. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Be to
1: God. The Lord be with you. And also with you. I love that. I like that so much better than hello, you know hello looks like conveys like I'm living are you living kind of thing you know but the Lord be with you that's another thing altogether. so the Lord be with you thank you for responding thank you for the opportunity to preach and to speak with you today and to worship with you it's precious to me I want to start by telling you about a friend of mine in the height of the pandemic back I think it was in 2020 she undertook a personal discipline I think she wanted just to hold on to some order and some sense of meaning in those really strange days. And I would say she has succeeded marvelously. She succeeded in more than just doing that for herself, though. She did it for so many others. For three years now, without fail, my friend has challenged herself to write a weekly journal prompt. That's just like a page or two long, if you printed it out. And she sends those out, I have no idea to how many people but she says she sends them floating around in the world. For many people since the beginning of Christianity, journaling has been a practice of faith. I know everyone doesn't do it, it is something that many people do though. People who journal are usually writing in response to some inspiration. Sometimes it's a scripture, sometimes it's a prayer they've said or they've heard. Sometimes it's a, a work of art or something in nature. And for some people, it's like a long narrative journal response. For other people, it's, it's you know, a few scratches on a piece of paper or maybe even a sketch. Or sometimes someone might journal actually by you know, making up a song or a dance. It doesn't have to be verbal, but usually it is. But the verbal kind is the kind my friend has been writing. And a few weeks ago, just as I was beginning to consider and study the scripture for today's sermon, the Holy Spirit showed me that in one of her weekly prompts, in fact the prompt for that very week, there was something that inspired me about this sermon. The prompt was based on a poem by Denise Levertov a British-American 20th-century poet, and I'd like to share it with you. The title is The Avowal. As swimmers dare to lie face to the sky and water bears them, as hawks rest upon air and air sustains them, so would I learn to attain freefall and float into Creator Spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns that all-surrounding grace. Now, if this were a literature course, I would have a great deal to say about that poem. <laughs> but I'm gonna resist that temptation and just say that I think it's fair to say that in that, those few words, the poet speaks a feeling that we can all imagine. And, in addition, she expresses a desire that I think many, many would echo. I'd like to sink. I'd like to rest without sinking, wouldn't you? Rest without sinking. I'd like to soar without effort. I used to dream I could fly, but I don't dream that anymore. I think reality has set in. <laughs> so would I learn to attain. She choose, poets choose their words very carefully so in other words just like those animals just like those floaters just like those those hawks so would i learn to attain freefall the word attain there is not a particularly poetic word but she means it so would i like to get i'd like to accomplish that freefall for myself but then she confesses in the last part knowing no effort earns that all surrounding grace in other words i'd like to have it but I can't get it. I think that's where, that's where for me, this poem intersects with Paul's words in the fourth chapter of Philippians verses four to nine. He's talking there to Philippians, of course, but the question is what is it that they and we desire? What do they want? And how can it be had? How can it be gained? Well. You know, but I'll rehearse for you, that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians because of his stand for the gospel. He was in prison. Well, they knew that. He didn't tell them that as news in the letter, but he wrote to tell them that there was more to the story than just imprisonment. But just as the Philippians received his letter and they knew of his imprisonment, he'd been in prison several times and a long time, they also knew that they because they were citizens of the imperial city of Philippi, they were also vulnerable to Roman persecution. Philippi was a special city. It was a city that had been established by the Roman Empire as having the same rights and privileges as Italian cities, which meant that it was very important. It also meant that it was populated largely by retired Roman soldiers. And so that city was very keen to any stresses, any pressures on the empire. And Christianity was a pressure on the empire, so they thought. So the Philippians were exposed to that vulnerability, to that threat. Paul noted that. He said as much in chapter 1, and I'll read you what he says. He says, I know that you, Philippians, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And then he says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you now hear that I still have. The Philippians were being persecuted. They weren't imprisoned yet, but they were being persecuted. So Roman domination and persecution was always present, the threat of that. But more than that, the Philippians were also experiencing attacks closer to hand. They were experiencing attacks of people that Paul labels dogs. A very strong language. And he says, those Jewish men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, what he meant was that they, those people were coming to Philippi and to other cities insisting that Gentile men who wanted to convert to Christianity had to essentially become Jews. They had to start obeying Jewish law and be circumcised. That's why Paul says mutilators of the flesh. So literally actually physically the Philippians were risking life and body for faith for their Christian faith and then as we heard in Matt's sermon last Sunday even more even more intimate level of anxiety would be that the Philippian congregation was experiencing infighting distress and discord among themselves or at least among some of them all of that no doubt a whole lot more that we can't even imagine Burdened the Philippians, almost past bearing. I think there's where we and they can identify with each other. Just as we identify with Levertov's poem, we identify the Philippians because what the Holy Spirit showed me is that in these first few verses of chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul is addressing that same perspective, that same felt need To be able to release the anxiety of frantically grasping for buoyancy, for some kind of updraft that will keep you going, keep you sustained. To be assured that somehow, somewhere, by someone, we will be upheld. I think that's a common human desire. Don't you think that's what the people in Ukraine are feeling? Don't you imagine that's what even people in Russia are feeling? Just want to be sustained. Just want to know that it doesn't all end right here with us. And I could say Hawaii. I could say Turkey. I could say, you know, uh, Syria. I could say, you know, everywhere. We could name places around the globe and right here in this room where we are frantically in our own being saying, is there a bottom to all this? And will I be protected from it? I think the Philippians wanted peace I know the speaker of Levertov's poem wanted peace. And I don't know about you, but I want peace. How can we attain it? Well, maybe you've heard this said. I know I've heard it said. It's kind of an old-fashioned cliche, but a lot of Christians say, let go and let God. Have you ever heard that? I hate that expression. Don't say it to me. Don't say that to me. <laughs> I have a response. You know, so anyway, stop right there. Stop right there. I know what people mean when they say that. I understand what they mean. It's a well-intentioned statement. I get that. But it just doesn't say anything. Like, how can I let go when I can't let go? I remember talking to a pastor in the 1980s, like you weren't even born when, but I remember going to a pastor and saying, how can I release my will to God if it's my will I'm fighting against? That's a really difficult question. That's a conundrum there is no end to. How can I let go if I can't let go? Every day, if you watch the news, if you listen to, if you do social media, if you even pay attention as you're walking down the street, sometimes it seems like every moment requires a concerted effort to suppress anxiety and to beat back despair. I'm not being melodramatic. I'm serious. This is not a comic book world. We're living in a real world where even if you're not a victim of physical war, you are under attack by many sources, many forces. And I don't want to, you know, make boogeymen, but I'm serious and I think you know what I mean. Exhortations to relax and just, you know, rejoice can seem trivializing. Somebody says, well, let go and let God. Well, what's he going to do? You know, it's like, what, what does that mean? It can seem... Trivializing, it's almost an insult if someone just says, well, all you need to do is let go. Like you're holding on to the steering wheel? Not. So how can we let go when we can't let go? Well, Paul's letter to the Philippians actually, I think, addresses that question. But I want to spend just a couple of minutes before we get to that answer. I want to clear up a potential source of confusion. And in fact, it may be the juggernaut of confusion. When we read Philippians 4, 4 to 9, and you can say this about a lot of passages in the Bible, when, when the poet says she wants to learn to attain, remember that phrase, learn to attain our desires? She wanted to learn to attain free fall. We want to learn to attain peace. We are immediately assaulted by Paul's imperatives. Look at this list, and it's shorthanded. It's I've done some ellipses here. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be evident. Present your request. Think about such things. Put it into practice. Rejoice, let, present, think, put. In the English language, those are imperatives. They are commands. You remember this from grade school. Those are commands. And when you read Paul, the way the translation is, and honestly, even in the Greek, he front loads that. That's the first part of the sentence. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Paul's big on that stuff. I might have challenged him if I'd been there in his household, but I wasn't. So, I think it's important for us to realize that we read that as a list of commands, and it's like, how to? Well, how am I going to get peace? Here. Eh? Uh, uh, uh. Do that. Do that. Do that. Paul's words can almost seem like it places more burden when you're already struggling to float. Wait a minute. What do I have to do? Sinks us even deeper away from peace. Well, let's clear that up, because that's, the reason we do that is because we're making a, a... misunderstanding in our thinking about language look at verse seven and then in a minute we'll look at verse nine now again i'm giving the commands rejoice let present i'm not putting all the other words there but you can look in the bible those are in the previous verses rejoice let this that, that. present that verse seven and the peace of god will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus look at verse nine same things happens think put blah, blah 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 and the God of peace will be with you. Do you see that big, those big red ands? In the English language, those are called coordinating conjunctions. Some of you are old enough to remember conjunction, junction, what's your function? Well, that's it. <laughs> that's it right there. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Right there. It's a coordinating, not a subordinating conjunction, a coordinating conjunction. And that's the same case in Greek. Greek is the same way about that as English is. Chi, K-A-I, is the way we would transliterate it in Greek, means and. It's just cumulative. It just accumulates. If you read the book of Mark, that's words like every other sentence. He begins every sentence like that, and, 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 and. Well, Paul is doing it between an imperative and another kind of statement. We, in common conversation, think about this. You and I have an unfortunate tendency to hear the word and in this way. Look at this sentence. You keep doing that, and I'm going to slap you silly. What's the implication? What do you believe to be the case there? Causation. Causation. And that's wrong. You passed the test, but we missed that on the test. Causation. It's not causation. That's not a cause. I might slap you whether you keep doing that or not, you know? So my point is, you need to, we need to change our thinking about what that and does in those key sentences, whether in Paul or anywhere else, even in English. Take that, take that causation out of there because all the and does is link. It does not link causally. It's tying clauses together. It's not linking cause and effect. That's not, that's not correct. So that's important to change. And just listen and I'll show you how it sounds if you take the ands out. Just listen to this. And I'm going to read it kind of in a flat, flat tone, but if I read it otherwise, you would read the and into it. Listen to this. And again, these are abbreviated versions of verse 7. Present your request to God. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Put into practice what I have taught you. The God of peace will be with you. There's no cause and effect there. Peace from God does not depend on our obedience. I, I, I really want you to hear that. I said that to someone the other day. I know she's been a Christian for like billions of years. And she said, I've never heard anybody say that before. I said, my gosh, she'd read the Bible. I know she has. And I said, well, I'll tell you. It's, it's a daily learning, isn't it? It's a daily learning that when I get up in the morning, I do not have a big old long to-do list to please the Lord before he's going to love me and give me blessings. And you think, well, doesn't that just release us out from doing anything for God? Oh, come on. What are you trying to do? There is no free lunch. Except with Jesus. Listen on. Listen further. Paul is not saying that what we do brings us peace. Of course, that contradicts our misunderstandings. This is the way we think. When I get my head on straight, when I get serious about daily devotions, when I learn to pray when I spend less time online and start spending more time in the Bible, when I get my degree, when I finish my residency, then I'll get peace. No, you won't. I'm not mocking you. I'm telling you from the alps of experience. (laughs) I've climbed the hill. I know nothing you do will bring you peace. Because celebrating closure Triumphing over our successes, seeking tranquility in nature, turning off our devices, none of that will bring us peace. The peace of God, look at this, have this tattooed on your arm. The peace of God, really, have this, the peace of God is an outgrowth of relationship with him. It is not a consequence of your behavior. That's why I can take the and out I could have reversed the syntax on those sentences altogether and said, the peace of the Lord is with you. Present your request to God. See what happens? The peace of God is an outgrowth of relationship with Him. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't just say rejoice, cut loose and have a good time. He says rejoice in the Lord. Not in what you are doing, but in the one who has finished the work for you. Amen. The Creator God that Levertoff refers to in her poem—notice she says the Creator spirits deep embrace—the Creator God is also the Crucified Christ. That's important. That's an important. If you read uh, Levertoff's biography and things about her, you would learn that she eventually gets to that, but she's just beginning her Christian walk when she writes this poem, and so she doesn't say. Crucified, she says, creator. But it's important that we understand that it's the crucified Christ who has life and death graced us with peace. He gave us forgiveness. He paid the price for our peace. It is he who is bearing you up on wings as eagles. I love that expression. He is he, it is he who is calling us to walk on the water. is that powerful? It is the Lord it's not how strong I am. It's not about how consistent you are. It's not about how disciplined you are. It is the Lord. Just, just rejoice in that. See, that's rejoicing for me. It is the Lord. I don't have to get it right. I don't have to get my degree. <laughs> you know, I don't have to do all those things. Pete, Paul wrote, the Lord is near." And there's a lot of talk about that in Bible commentary. Did Paul believe that Jesus was coming back within his lifetime? Probably. We know from Scripture and from other writings that many Christians in the early days hoped or at least believed or, or felt they assumed that Jesus was coming right back like within the next few years. And they thought that when he came back it would not only, he would not only rescue them from all that was going on in the world around them but he would vindicate their faith. And so they write as the one who identifies himself as John writes in the book of Revelation, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. They were ready like, take me up, be me up, Jesus. I'm done down here. But as far as we know, that didn't happen. And yet Paul's words maintain the Lord is near. He's near now. Every day. In the person of his spirit, the Lord is present for us, to us, with us, in us. By his grace, we need not sink under the weight of anxiety. By his grace, we need not sink under the weight of anxiety. Our Savior is our surety. You know what surety is? You know, like a, like a guarantee against a bond. Our Savior is our surety. He's the one holding us up. He's the one under our wings. In communion with the Lord Jesus, we can, as the old gospel song sounds, and I won't sing this song for you, but I love this old song, leave our heavy burdens at the cross. Leave our heavy burdens at the cross. And the refrain is, O sinner, go free. And... That's exactly what it is. We can take to Jesus. I just did this last week. I won't tell you my story, but you've got stories of your own. I was at wit's end. I just felt like every time I looked out, it, it, was just black. I was just seeing just, and I didn't even pray. I'm serious. I just sat there in the living room, and the Lord just came on to me, and he said, I've got it. I've got you. The situation hasn't changed but I did not feel despair he just like whoop, like whoop. and I was able to smile and actually rejoice there just a little bit in the living room in my, within myself just rejoice because joy is the response of faith when it rests in the God of peace look at every word there I chose every word very specifically. Joy is the response of faith when it rests in the God of peace. Joy is the response of faith when it rests in the God of peace. This sermon began with a poem entitled The Avowal. That's not a word we use very much. It's easy to mistake it for vowel. That's not it. And avowal is an affirmation or an acknowledgment of what a person believes. It's like when you take vows, then you have made an avowal. It's the same kind of word, same word. So I'm wondering, in Levertov's poem, The Speaker of Vows, she makes an avowal of her desire, what she wants. And then at the end, she makes another avowal by saying, but I don't believe I can get it. I don't believe I can do anything to get it. So I'm thinking, what would you avow today? So I'm going to offer you a series of statements. And if you believe them, I encourage you to repeat them and read them with me. And I'm going to read every one as if it started with, I believe. I didn't repeat those words every time, but they're at the top of the list. Read with me if you will. I believe that our Lord is near. I believe that his love grants us grace. I believe that his grace gives us peace I believe that his peace prompts our joy so the question is not what is there to rejoice about the question is how can we keep from rejoicing and whereas Paul says that his time in prison through the faithfulness of Christ, has served to advance the gospel. He says, my being in prison has actually served to spread the good news about Jesus. I'm praying that you and I, through the Lord's peace and joy in our lives, may shine the beauty of Jesus in an ever-darkening world. I invite us now to spend a couple of minutes thinking about that.